we read that only the Lamb, who is Christ, was able to open the scroll. And John rejoices at this, at first crying, he's, he's weeping that no one can open it. The Lamb opens the scroll and he rejoices. And then in chapter 6, a few weeks ago, we saw the Lamb opening the seven seals. Well, not all seven. We got through six of them. The seventh seal is in chapter 8, so we'll get there well, in January, God willing. It concluded, we, as we ended chapter 6, uh, the, the last scene was one of judgment. It was one of fear. Who, who will be able to escape from the judgment of God? Who will be able to escape the wrath of this holy and righteous God? And they're, they're fleeing and they're hiding. They, they'd rather, uh, even in a sense, sort of commit suicide rather than have to face the, uh, the judgment of God that is coming. Very vivid images that we see there at the end of chapter 6. And as we get to chapter 7, then we get the answer to that. Who will be able to escape from God's judgment? Who will be spared from God's wrath? Well, here we find the answer. So look at chapter 7 with me. I'll begin in verse 1. We'll read through the whole thing. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to, uh, to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And rather than reading this verbatim, verses 5 through 8, let me just list the tribes here. There's 12,000 from each. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from uh, where have they come? Verse 14. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as we look at these first few verses then, God's agents here are set to sort of calm the earth. The four corners of the earth is a figurative way to say every part of the earth. 
They're set to, to calm before the wrath that is to come before ultimately God's judgment that we're going to see being poured out very soon. They're going to hold things off when? Until God sets his seal upon his people. And that's going to be the key thing that we're going to explore here through these next few verses, this idea of the seal, God's seal over his people. In verses 3 through 4, John hears a specific number to represent those who were sealed before God. What does this sealing mean, to be sealed by God? Is it like a branding, like, a, like you would brand cattle? What, 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 is it, what is it to be sealed by God? Is it a tattoo? Rebecca? That's exactly right, yeah. It, it, this is a sign of approval from the Lord. That's exactly right. Carla, that was you, right? I can't see who's moving back here. Um, that's absolutely right. This language is not unique to Revelation. Uh, Paul uses it, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1. It actually, it's worth our time. Let's flip over there real quick to Ephesians chapter 1. See this language of sealing, to be sealed. Not sealing, but to be sealed. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13 with me. I'll try to give time. Verse 13, Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it's a sign of salvation. It's a sign of being set apart. Sign of God's approval. That's absolutely right. Um, this, this key point is that those who are sealed will be spared of God's wrath that we saw at the very end of chapter 6, and ultimately that we're going to see worked out throughout much of the rest of the book, these next several chapters at least. The seal authenticates uh, them as God's own, as recipients of God's grace. They are His children. And there's really some important implications that we could draw out from this. Before I go, Bob, you have, you have thoughts? That's right. Yeah, ownership's a good way to say it, right? These are mine, right? This, this ha they have my approval on them. A um, couple implications. We could look at more. Well, think about that. This, this seal is not something that's sort of, you know, sort of written on there, you know, with, with a highlighter that's going to fade off in a day or two to, use, to follow this analogy of a, of a sign, of a physical sign. This is something that it, it, it implies security in our salvation before God. Number one, it's from God. That means a lot. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that we're working out in our own that somehow God kind of goes, okay, I guess you've done enough. You, you can hold my seal for now. Just don't lose it. No, there's, there's a real sign here. And it's also of, of God's glory that this seal is given. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. The key thing I want to point out here is that this, this is, there's no reason for us to think this is a literal mark. This is apocalyptic literature, a ton of symbolism. Sometimes it's hard to understand I think in this sense, it's quite clear that this is not a physical symbol. We're going to talk more about symbols in a little bit. This is a symbol of God's protection, of, of ownership, uh, as Bob said. We see something like this in the Old Testament. Very often the case in Revelation, these are things that John is picking up or images that ultimately are, are, are biblical, so Old Testament for them. Uh, we see it in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, where, where God's wrath is going to be coming, but there is a hold off until God has set his seal upon his people. 
Um, we could even use the analogy thinking back to the Passover, right? Sort of the, the blood over the door that ultimately God would pass over. It's sort of this sign of God's grace in that way. There's a similar similarity there. We see another mark in Revelation, though, which is the one we usually talk more about, especially in popular culture. What is, what is the other mark? The mark of the beast. We all know that, don't we? You know, uh, goodness, I'll, I'll try not to talk too much about it because I, I don't want to poke fun. But there's a lot of talk about that today, isn't there? You know, that we, oh, what if we get the sign, like, you know, a chip in us, or, or maybe there's the vaccine, you know, the mark of the beast. You know, there's so many... And I, again, I, I don't want to poke fun at anybody, but that's, that's not what this is talking about at all. Uh, number one, this is not something that's given involuntary. Uh, the sign, the mark of the beast that we're going to see, we're not going to get there for a few chapters. It's in Revelation 13, Revelation 14, Revelation 20. We're going to see it quite a bit as God allows us to, to continue moving through here. But this mark of the beast is a satanic imitation of God's seal. So God's seal is a seal of approval, a seal of salvation. And, and the beast wants to give his imitation. That's always what we see Satan doing. Satan is always doing a cheap imitation of what God is doing. We see that with the, the magicians before Moses, right? Oh, Moses, can, or the, the, musician, or the magicians are doing this. They're trying to do a cheap imitation of what God is doing through Moses. We see that throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Uh, what were called lying signs, lying miracles. Um, basically, the, the devil manufacturing, imitating God's work. More that we could say about that, um, but I think that we can re, uh, we'll revisit this as we go through, unless you all have any really pressing questions at this point. We're going to keep exploring this. Okay. So the number that we're giving here is quite specific, isn't it? 144,000. Where does this number come from in the text? 144,000. It's just simple math, Right? So 12,000 times 12. So we have these 12 tribes of Israel, which the list that's given is super interesting. Uh, if we have time, I want to come back and look at these by, by the names that are and are not included. Notice Dan's not in there. Where's Dan? He's one of the 12 tribes. You know, anyway, so if we have time, we'll come back to this. And I think there's some, even some, some implications here for the symbolism. But it's composed of this, this factor of 12, 12 tribes of Israel times 1,000. In the Bible... Um, anytime you see 3 or 7 or 12, these are, these are numbers that communicate something. 12 is a number of completion, of wholeness. Um, the, the, the church has uh, historically taken this number of 144,000 to be symbolic. Um, and we'll talk more about what it's symbolizing in a moment. But there's a non-Christian group that's pretty well known for taking this very literally. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Yeah, Bob? Yeah. Right, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Everyone knows who the Jehovah's Witnesses are, right? Um, and so they take this number, because of course they have their scriptures and they use the Christian Bible as well, kind of like Mormons to some extent. Obviously those two groups are very different, um, but similarly have, have a very different, they're non-Christian groups, um, but would still use Christian scriptures. Of course, even Muslims would use the Christian Bible in some way. Uh, they just believe it's corrupted. But the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that 144,000 to the, the exact number um, are the, the faithful saints from Pentecost up until Christ's return. So including in our time, that the, throughout all of history, God is only going to save 144,000 people. And so you're either in that number or you're out. You know, it's, it's something that just that God is doing uniquely in this way, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
view. And so these are the ones that would be anointed and so on. Have y'all, I don't think, we certainly haven't. We live out in Candler. Anyone have JWs or have Mormons come to your door? Not too often? Not a lot, huh? You've had them sometimes? Have you? They would come out there? Yeah, I mean, everywhere else I've lived, you know, but what, maybe that's one of the blessings, honey. We live, we're a little out in the outskirts, so no, we haven't had them in our door yet. I, I kind of, I mean, I enjoy when they come by, I share the gospel with them. Um, but anyway, so, so that's, that's their unique view. There, there is a Christian, there are some Christians that take this literally as well, um, but, but even then, it, it's, it's different. They take it literally of a subset of God's people, not for the whole of God's people. So in verses 9 through 10, we arrive at one of the most astonishing scenes in Revelation. Uh, This is the heavenly multitude uh, here. Earlier, um, John heard about the 144,000, and he doesn't see anything, though. You notice he's hearing this. But here in verse 9 and 10, he sees the crowd that is the great multitude that no one could number. And it's interesting. He says, John, who who are these people? He says, "I, I don't know. You know, don't you? He says, sir, you know. And then he goes, oh, yeah, I guess I do. I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, th- this, this seems to be a, a vision of the same group that is referenced in these 144,000, in the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolizing the whole of the people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, there, there is a group of Christian, uh, of Christian churches. There's not, they don't even really have churches. I mean, the technical word I would say is interpreters. You know, there's a group of people who interpret the New Testament in a certain way to see these as representing Israel and the 144,000, literally even 144,000 Jews to be saved, and then the rest is the church. That's a relatively new, actually relatively, that's an understatement. It's a very new interpretation, only about 120 years old. Um, Before this, this was always taken to be the whole of the people of God, but about 120, maybe 150 years ago, if you were to go to Europe, it was only about 120 years ago here in the United States, uh, but it's called dispensationalism. Uh, and some of you might come from that background. This might be exactly what you're used to seeing. Um, and that's actually how I was raised as well, um, to see these as two very, it takes Israel and the church and, and really drives a wedge between them, saying, no, God is kind of on two different tracks here with the Jews and the church. I think that's problematic, biblically. Um, and we don't need to go in great depth unless you're curious about some of that. I, I hold a different view. Uh, I hold a view called historic premillennialism, which is a view that's been more represented throughout church history and I think is more plain uh, of what is in the Bible itself rather than some of these other extra-biblical ideas. A similar pattern is used in chapter 5, this sort of the idea where John is told something and then sees something else. So in chapter 5, he's told that there's a lion but then what does he see? He's a lamb, right? Apocalyptic literature loves doing stuff like this. Why, why would it do that? Why would it speak about a lion and then he sees a lamb? Well, it's communicating two things about that same person. So Jesus, in a sense, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also the lamb that is slain. So it's speaking of the same person here. I think these two groups, it's speaking of that in the same way. Uh, the, the demographics of the group is, is, is noteworthy here. Look at it in verses 9 and 10. Composed of every tongue tribe, and nation. This is a beautiful picture. This is what heaven will look like. This is what eternity will look like with our Lord. I don't have to tell you that there's a a great deal of racial discord in our society. Um, Something we've probably not experienced to this level since the 1960s. Some of you remember the 1960s? All the riots and and the the violence. 
Um, not to mention having the Vietnam War at the time. It was a very chaotic time. In many ways, it, this is a whole lot like that. But what a comfort to God's people to know that in eternity, these divisions will no longer separate us, whether it's class, whether it's race, whether it's region, culture, whatever it is, all of these things will ultimately uh, become nothing And when we consider uh, our, our being unified together in Jesus Christ. What are the people doing here in the text? Verse 11 and 12, once we get there, they're, they're celebrating, right? They're rejoicing for the Lord's salvation. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They're, they're celebrating. The scene kind of looks like Hosanna. When Jesus is coming in into Jerusalem and they're waving the palm branches, Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? Salvation. Salvation. Save us. Um, in verses 11 and 12, the, the angels and the other heavenly beings are, are then joining in in this song of praise. This is what heaven will look like. They, they glorify God when they see the great multitude that he has saved. Again, this is God who saves. We, we can't save ourselves. No matter how good we are, no matter what we can achieve in this life, no matter what things we avoid, only God is the Savior. And that's why salvation belongs to our God. We could study just those couple verses of the songs that they're singing to the Lord. Uh, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The, the, um, they are, the, he refers back to the great multitude in verses 13 and 14. What are they wearing? They're clothed with something very important that, get the end that I think is symbolic here. They're wearing white robes. Now, only in the heavenly economy do you have robes that are white, that are washed white in the blood. And if I get blood on something, it's not going to be white anymore. <laughs> you know, I, in fact, I was eating before I came in here and I got some sauce on my pants. My pants are soiled. They're, they're dirty here. But with, with, with the blood of Christ, there's a sense in which, you know, again, symbolism here. The blood of Christ purifies us. Um, apocalyptic literature loves things like this. So if we were trying to paint this, I don't know, you'd have like a white robe with like a, maybe a transparent redness or something on the robe. Yeah, Bob? Uh-huh. That's very true. Yeah, good thought. Lots of browns and grays and yeah. White white would have been something that only the very wealthy would have had. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there is something uh, outstanding about it. it. It would have been something that that's a that's a great point, Bob. So so these that are clothed in the white robes again I, I'm I'm taking this to say that this is the the multitude that we see in verse nine and ten. I'm saying that it's the same group that we see in another symbolism in, in the other verses with the 144,000. They will be spared of God's judgment. Who will be spared from the wrath that is to come? These. And only these. Having eternal life, we, we will sing uh, together. We will join with them in heaven is, is the image here. All of God's people. Now, let's think more about uh, this, this tribulation here. The elder tells John, this is a heavenly, well, we already talked about who the elders may or may not be. Well, we won't revisit that. But the elder tells John that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And so I think I mentioned to you um, a couple Sundays ago, someone asked me, he was visiting with his family, uh, Marlon and Roger, who sit back here, they, I believe it's their son. Um, and he said, you know, what's your view on the tribulation? Are you pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib? I told him, man, there's not many mid-tribs left. <laughs> you know, uh, there used to be, you know, a lot of these views and stuff. 
Um, but, but the fact is, that this, this phrase here, this is not the first time we've encountered it in Revelation, is it? You don't remember where we've seen it elsewhere in Revelation? A number of times, actually. It came up at least twice in the first three chapters where we did the letters to the seven churches. And it's going to come up, come up again as we go through. It's quite common in the New Testament, this language. Um, we see the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24, verse 21, uh, prophesied as what will be a tribulation for God's people. And it was, if you know historically about that time, it was really the epitome of chaos. Uh, the Romans came through and just, they just destroyed Jerusalem, absolutely tore down the temple. It was a terrible time. I can see why they would call it a tribulation. Paul in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, uh, says that to enter the kingdom of God, we will have to pass through many tribulations, he says. Uh, and then, as I said, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 22, and elsewhere, we see this. In fact, even that language of the great tribulation is spoken of in Revelation 1, verse 9. And so this is, this is not speaking in a definitive way, or if it is, it's speaking of multiple things in this way. In this instance, it, it seems to refer to the time, and this is, this is the historic view, and we could talk about other views after, but the historic view is that between the ascension of Christ, or some would say the, ultimately the, the, the cross, or, or even the first coming of Christ, but we could say Christ, his ascension, between that time and his second coming is a period of, of tribulation. Now, there's ebb and flow through there, isn't there? But this is a time of tribulation. The, the groanings, um, the, uh, what is the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 8? He speaks of the, the birth pangs until Christ, Christ will return. And so this is that period, this time of, of tribulation where we, even as we just talked earlier, we face pandemics, we face wars, we face persecution, we face uh, our own trials within ourselves and our flesh and the struggles with sin. And so this has historically been the case. But let me see how much time we have. Oh, okay, I'll say it quickly. But then there's also a view, and this doesn't actually come from Revelation directly, but there's a view that the tribulation will be a literal seven years. That actually comes from the book of, of Daniel primarily. Um, and maybe we'll get to dig into Daniel a little bit more um, as we go through Revelation because it's so connected. But it's this idea that basically there'll be a seven-year tribulation that's really intense, and then Christ will return, if you're post, actually. Some people believe that, that Christ would come at the beginning, take up his church, and then the rest of the world will go through the seven years. Few people will be saved in there, some Jews saved in there, um, and then ultimately the, the millennium, the thousand-year reign. We'll get there eventually. Some would say that it happens in between. That's, that, there's not many people that, that most people have given up on that. But, but there is certainly a pre and a post view in there. But again, I don't think, my own view is that there's not a literal seven years, but rather a period, a, a season of, of, of the great tribulation that ultimately all these will go through. So look back at, up at verse 9. Those that are in this great multitude, and indeed, especially if we are connecting them to what we see in verses 4 and 5 and, and following, that this group ultimately, or at the very least we could say the group in verse 9, are those who have come through the tribulation. So in other words, all of God's people since Pentecost or since the, the ascension until Christ returns. We don't know if that's tomorrow. We don't know if that's 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now. But whenever that is, it's all those that would be in there that will die ultimately whose spirit is with the Lord. Um, that's clearly the idea that we have here in verses 9 and 10. Um, in verses 15 through 17, and then if, if we have questions, I'll come back to it. Here are those most comforting words, particularly in verses 16 and 17. 
um, that they shall hunger no more, they shall thirst no more. God will wipe away every tear. He will lead them to the springs of living water. This is eternal comfort from the shepherd. But notice, actually, it's funny. The shepherd is a lamb. How interesting is that? The lamb is the shepherd, right? That, that's, that's biblical imagery. That he, he's the lamb, but he's also the savior. He's also the, the shepherd. Think of a big lamb with a stick walking around, you know, moving the, the sheep around. But it, that's the idea here, biblically, these, these symbols here, right? And so th- this is what we have to look forward to in eternity. The wholeness, uh, the fullness of joy uh, in God's presence. No more want, no more loss, no more sadness. In our last few minutes, what questions do you have about the tribulation, 144,000, any of these sort of things, the pre, post, mid, all that kind of stuff? We're going to explore this more as we go through, especially when we get to chapter 13, 14, 15. The millennium shows up in chapter 20. And really the last couple chapters, there's a lot about the millennium. And, and I do, my view is that there is a literal millennium, even an earthly millennium. Um, the thousand years, maybe it's symbolic, maybe it's not, but it's clearly representative of a very long time where Christ will come back and reign on earth before the white throne judgment. And we'll get there, that'll be probably a few months out before we get to that part. Any questions before we close up? Thoughts? Anybody? No? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. And uh, God willing, January 6th, we'll come back and we'll get to chapter 8, which in chapter 8 is where we get that seventh seal being opened. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, I do pray, uh, Lord, that you would bless your word. Pray, God, you'd help us understand it. Oh, I pray, God, just the same that you would help us to apply it. That, Lord, we, we live in a time where your judgment is coming. Lord, you say in your word that you stand at the door. And yet, God, for those of us who are yours, we have your seal. We are saved. You uh, will, Lord, preserve us. You call us your own. And so, Lord, no matter what we face in this life, God, we have that confidence. And, Lord, we look forward to the day, Lord, when you will wipe every tear from our eyes. And, God, where we will be with you for eternity in bliss, comfort, in your love. I pray, God, that that comfort would, would be over these brothers and sisters here as they go throughout the rest of their week until we gather again on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and have a great night.